Welcome to the Officer Media Group Roll Call Podcast. Officer Roll Call is meant to inform and entertain. Now, let's get into this episode. Hello, this is Paul Peluso. I'm the editor of Officer Magazine, and this is the newest episode of the Officer Roll Call Podcast. I'm joined, as always, by Officer Media Group Editorial Director Frank Borelli. How's it going today, Frank? Good morning, Paul. Going pretty good. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. So today we're going to be talking about drones, duty cameras, and video management. And in the uh, July-August issue of Officer Magazine, we had two articles that uh, focused on drones and, you know, basically what not only what they do, but how um, how departments can take better advantage of them and some of the components that go into the the backside of them like um like the video management and things that departments need to be uh, aware of right so first frank if um if you can talk a little bit about how you've seen the past few years drones um continuing to become a, a bigger um asset for law enforcement agencies well you know it, it's interesting that if you look back uh, before drones were widely used in law enforcement, right? Uh, everybody knew what a drone was in 1990 because it was a predator drone that the news show you on TV that the military used for the war. Um, and then when it became public knowledge, law enforcement was using drones. There was this huge outcry. Why does why does police department need predator drones? Well, we weren't using predator drones, obviously. But then there was this huge push for law enforcement agencies to embrace drones. And of course, we're talking about remotely controlled aerial drones. Uh, and people seem to forget about the fact that we have underwater drones used by many harbor and maritime units. And we have on the water drones and we have on land drones. We need robots, they're, they're remote controlled. Uh, all of these things qualify as drones. But when you look at the aerial, remote controlled aerial drones, um, so many people were flying them, both in the public and private sector, that uh, the FAA had to had to step in and say, "Okay, this is how we're going to do this." And then agencies realized, "Wait a minute, we have to have proper training, we have to have uh, licensing, we have to have notification systems, we have to have the proper equipment, and and what's the best use?" And they actually began doing needs and requirement studies and and selecting officers to be pilots and putting people through training. And it's kind of stabilized now where uh, agencies are strategically using drones, which makes them far more efficient. I mean, you know, now we're using them for search and rescue. We're using them for high-risk threat assessment. We're using them for uh, even tra traffic accident investigation for overhead imagery. Um, you know, the ability to capture video and photographs has become so widespread and really adds to the strength of the drone programs that we're seeing it everywhere. Um, and I've probably answered your question and then some, but it's it's good to see drones now being incorporated into the day to day of law enforcement in a structured, trained, licensed, insured, legally controlled, efficient manner. Yeah, that was a lot of good information, Frank. Uh, basically, when and I wanted to talk about a you know article that I wrote for the July August issue. It's drone as a first responder. You can find it on the website, um, online, and also in the digital and uh, print editions. But when uh, departments started using the drones, it was usually for 
you know, either large scale events or, um, you know, disasters if they wanted to kind of get a better view of what was going on, but also search and rescue and hostage situations that they were kind of used as a Um, Mm one-off. The Chula Vista Police Department um, was the first to really pioneer this drone as a first responder uh, DFR program um, that they began in uh, 2018 and were the first in the world to really um, use this where it goes out on calls. Uh, They have launch stations from different parts of the city and they have drones that are remotely uh, flown uh, to to the the call, to the nine one one call, and that way they can kind of get an uh, overview of what's going on before officers even arrive on the scene. And uh, so, like I said, this was Chula Vista, and back then, this was actually a few years earlier. Uh, Roxana Kennedy was uh, captain of the department's patrol of it, division, and it was just a couple months before she was named police chief, and she's still the police chief there. That you know, they they were trying to find ways to get um, to get more information to officers arriving on the scene. So they would have they first started out they would have officers arrive. Um, and, you know, un- unmarked vehicles, plain clothes, just to kind of relay information back to the responding officers. Um, so that way that they were better prepared when they got there. Um, this spawned the idea of using, you know, using drones, using un- unmanned uh, aerial vehicles to uh, to assess the situation and send back better information um, before officers arrived on the scene. And in order to do that, um, and this goes kind of into the the data and software side of it, they needed something that they could rely on. Um, you know, they, there weren't a lot of programs out there that could really do what they needed to do. Um, you know, when, when you're flying a drone, you can run into all sorts of issues with obstacles and um, and, and different things that might prevent the, the drone from... Uh, reaching its destination, especially when you're flying at long distances like they are, you're not just, you know, setting it up in the air and kind of doing overwatch. It's, it's a lot more than that. Um, So Motorola Solutions has the, their Cape drone software and um, Chula Vista was the first to use it. Now, you know, a bunch of other departments use it as well for this uh, drone as a first responder program. So what, what do you kind of think of this, Frank? I know it's, when they started this and it was just a few years ago, it's kind of revolutionary in the, in the sense that they're, you know, sending these drones out on calls. So I, I think it's, it's a huge strength, uh, but it's probably limited to areas where the residential density is high enough. Um, you know, if, if all of us could get a call for service and have a helicopter overhead and get better Intel or more information along while we're responding, that would be that that would increase the efficiency of our response and it would better prepare officers to manage what they find once they get there um the challenge is having the remote launch stations and and the infrastructure uh and the, and the training and the software and everything else that goes with it so uh for instance you know chula vista enough density of population enough buildings enough launch potential enough different locations for launch areas fantastic tool um you know I live in Calvert County, Maryland, and, uh, you know, the launch capabilities, the launch locations, the potential, it, it, it's just too spread out. I mean, 
you couldn't have enough of them to really make it an effective program. I don't think I could be wrong. Um, but to have it in place is a huge strength of response. Uh, having that drone as a first responder and the intelligence it can deliver back and, and how that increases the efficiency of the responding officers, how it helps them control their, their risk uh, and, and increases officer survival, uh, the speed at which other emergency agencies can be dispatched. Um, it, it, it's all, I mean, you look at the simple example of a traffic accident. Officers are, are dispatched. If you can get a drone overhead, you can tell whether or not vehicles are disabled, whether or not people are injured, whether or not you need ambulances, whether or not you need tow trucks. The speed uh, of response and efficiency of response is hugely enabled by drones as first responders. So in the areas where it can be uh, a program that's activated, I would recommend it. I think it's an awesome tool. So, yeah, that, that's a good point, Frank, that, you know, this isn't something that rural police departments or uh, sheriff's offices are really going to be able to use as much, really, when you think of uh, suburbs outside of um, larger municipalities. Um, you know, Chula Vista is outside of San Diego. Uh, another good example is the Brookhaven um, Police Department in Georgia. Uh, they're right outside of Atlanta, and they uh, their uh, program was approved in 2020. They took their first flight in 2021. It's only a couple years old, and they've seen a lot of success with it. I, I think that when you get um, those suburban departments, when they they can get a little bit more buy-in than maybe those big cities can, and right. um, have a little bit of a smaller staff, but they're still you know larger mid-size departments. Um, if you think of some of the areas around you, like PG County, Montgomery County, some of those could probably benefit from uh, programs like this. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. So, so yeah, um, I, I think that this is really, you know, had, had a lot of success for these departments and kind of shows that, um, you know, public private partnership that they have with, uh, Motorola and how that has really helped, um, you know, they've helped out Motorola a lot because they needed departments to test the software and to use the software. Um, and at the same time, you know, departments needed something like this software like this that, that helped them uh, get the job done. So I think it's a really good example of, um, you know, the technology really taking off because you have departments willing to uh, test it out. Yep, indeed. So the second article I want to talk about is by uh, Joe Vince, uh, and it's Compromised Airspace. This also ran in the um, July-August issue and really focuses on um, in the state of Florida, where, where I live, um, they, they, a law went into effect. It was approved, uh, I believe, at the end of 2022. And in, in April, this law went into effect that you can't, um, that departments can't use drones that are manufactured in foreign countries of concern, uh, which includes China. And one of the most used, um, most prevalent drones used uh, by departments is DJI. Um, they, you know, are kind of at the forefront of creating a lot of this, this new technology, um, but it is a Chinese based company. And so of course there's some, you know, there's privacy concerns, there's all sorts of things that, that have been around for the last few years as they've gotten bigger and bigger. And so, you know, Florida is trying to kind of find a way around that. But at the same time, you have these departments, um, that have 
relied on these drones. Uh, you know, in Joe's article, it cites that the Collier County uh, Sheriff's Office had 31 drones they can no longer use after this. Uh, Tampa Police Department had seven. Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office, um, which, which is uh, Tampa resides in, um, had to stop using 15 of its 16 drones. And Orange County, which is over by Orlando, shelved 19 of its 25. Um, so after, after it was seen that, uh, that that was going to be a huge issue once this new rule went into effect, uh, you know, they, they cut out some provisions for these departments to kind of be able to find better ways and put more money towards them buying new drones. But if, you know, it was nice, this article that Joe wrote kind of got both sides of it where he talked, he got some uh, comments from DJI and, of course, they're saying that there aren't any privacy concerns and, you know, that that this shouldn't be going on in Florida. But at the same time, you have um, makers of U.S. based makers of drones like uh, Skydio and um, and like Teledyne Flare who are kind of seeing this as an opportunity for them to get, you know, a, a bigger part of the market, um, but then also provide drones that are us made so you don't have a lot of those privacy concerns so what what do you think of this frank because i know this has been you know we've been kind of keeping an eye on this issue for for years now um where you have these chinese technology makers that are coming in and you know a, a lot of the municipalities and politicians are worried well and and i think some of it's justified and some of it's not um unfortunately when we have legislators who make broad laws and and um, those laws include disqualifications for manufacturers. Sometimes, you know, law enforcement and the communities that they serve pay the price. Uh, and thankfully, there's a little bit of funding provided to replace the drones that are taken out of service. I mean, I'm I'm no software engineer, Paul. I don't know if the data concerns are realistic or if they're extreme. But even if there's a possibility of data being shared. It's something everybody ought to take seriously, uh, especially within law enforcement, where there are so many stringent and strict controls on what data can be shared, can't be shared, the conditions upon which it can be shared, uh, and, and then all the controls that have to be in place. So, you know, it's it's a mixed bag. Uh, it, unfortunately, whether we like it, don't like it, it's a reality that's there. And, and I think a lot of uh, a lot of great solutions are being found to work around it. Um, and, and moving forward, it'll be taken into consideration. I, I don't think it really hurts us as far as the equipment that we get. I think it hurts us in the budget uh, and, and may have an impact on policy. But we deal with that all the time. Every year, new laws get made that affect budget and policy. So, you know, it's just uh, we're going to have to keep that in mind as we develop drone programs and select equipment. At, at the end of the day, we're still going to do the job. We're still going to have the programs. We're just going to fit them into the framework uh, that comes out of D.C. And hopefully that framework will stay based on common sense. Yeah, this article, it even you know, kind of says how the officers on the streets and even, you know, their their higher up supervisors don't necessarily care, you know, if the Chinese government's being able to see some guy running down the street that they're arresting, that that's kind of out of their purview, that they they want something that gets the job done um but then that you know these other companies like teledyne flare and their new uh cirrus drone um they've even gone a step further that 
you know, the, that these drones, these devices connect to nothing um, as far as the cloud and only stores the imagery on the micro SD card, which is kind of, you know, setting these departments back a little bit in the name of security in the name of privacy um, that it, it can't be just, you know, sent directly to the cloud. So yeah, it, it's hopefully you would think that we would come for far enough in the next couple of years where we find a work around this and, and hopefully. Uh, departments don't have to be roped into this, you know, political battle and, and have the tools that they need to get the job done uh, without worrying about these concerns. Well, unfortunately, every agency at some level is, is gets roped into the political battle, as you say. And, you know, while we need, you're right. I mean, the agencies that say, well, we don't care if China can see us chasing a guy down the street with a drone, they see him running. Maybe not. But is that person identifiable? Is that video connected to a report? Is that person's identification information, name, height, weight, social security number, date of birth, home address or last known address? All that stuff connected to that video. So now we're not just talking about can China see the guy running down the street? We're talking about does China have access uh, through their own software or what they have controls over in the drone to be able to see that other identifying information? And as long as we're avoiding that, then I'm with them. Yeah, who cares? They can see a, you know, a video of a guy running down the street. That happens in movies all the time. As long as the identification information, the controlled information, the stuff that's in the report that we're not allowed to put out publicly, uh, as long as that's all secure, then we keep on moving forward. And, and I think that's all that's really going on. I think that was the drive behind the new laws uh, was to ensure the privacy and protection of the data. I don't, I don't know that they did it the most efficient way, but it's what we have to deal with. So, Frank, and to close things out here, I, I just want to kind of take a uh, step into the time machine back in, when you uh, wrote this article back in February of 2022 for Officer Magazine. And it's a matter of perspective. You guys can find it uh, on the website and also in our magazine archives online. Um, so you wrote the story uh, about how law enforcement agencies need to ensure their camera and video uses policies take into consideration what the officers observe with their own eyes. So if you can just kind of talk about um, some things you thought about while writing this about privacy for the officers, privacy for you know, the, those being filmed and also uh, how this data is stored, because there's a lot of it. Well, there is. And when you think about it, we've got more cameras than ever before now. Right. We have a, a we started out with dash cam. So you have a camera on the front of your on your dashboard looking towards the front of your vehicle. And everybody said, well, that, you know, it's going to record what the officer sees while he's driving. Well, yeah, as long as the officer's only looking straight ahead and not left or right or what he's seeing in his rearview mirrors or side view mirrors. Um, so it's really not. It's one little piece of what the officer sees. Now we have body-worn cameras, typically worn in the middle of the chest, looking forward. Hey, they're going to see everything the officer sees. Well, no, they're not. The officer's going to turn his head. You know, his his head doesn't face necessarily the direction of the camera, and his eyes can be moved in his head. Um, you know, the big answer for a long time, how do we know what the officer saw when he fired his weapon? Let's put a camera on the weapon. And then we can see exactly what the officers saw. Uh, no, you see where the weapons pointed. You don't see what where the officer is seeing and what he's seeing. And even if you did, at the end of the day, after all of that, if you can actually find a way, you put a camera. Uh, I'm a guy who wears corrective lenses, so I've got glasses on. If you can put a camera on one of the arms of my glasses, and that camera's always facing the direction of my head, 
good chance majority of the time you're going to see on that camera what I saw with my eyes. But can you interpret it the same way? Are you going to hear all of the sounds? Are you going to smell all of the smells? Are you going to feel temperatures? Are you going to perceive body language? Everything I've been trained, uh, you know, my knowledge, my experience, and my training all impacts how I perceive and how I translate what I see. Camera can't do any of that. Um, so at the end of the day, when we say, you know, it's a matter of perception, it, it 100% is, but perception is all of the data we take in through all of our five senses, and then we interpret it through our knowledge and our experience and our training. And that's how I come up with uh, how I orient myself to what's going on around me. You know, on, on our site, we have several articles about Boyd's cycle. We call them OODA loops, O-O-D-A, observe, orient, decide, and act. The video can observe. The video never can determine our orientation, how we perceive what's going on around us and how we fit into it. What's a threat? What's not? What needs action? What needs attention? All of that stuff. Then we make decisions and then we take an action. And in today's world, we're trying to use video to justify an action. And we're missing steps. Um, and we, we, re, we just need to take that into consideration. Agency policy needs to recognize that. Investigators need to understand that. And ultimately, we need to be able to, to articulate that to juries that are going to be looking at those videos and then trying to decide whether or not an officer did something right or wrong or whether the video shows uh, an action on the part of a suspect that the officer says happened or didn't, whatever. Uh, the evidentiary value of it has to be filtered through perception, and that perception has to be able to be articulated and to how unique it is. Because I can be standing right next to another officer and we both see the same thing. We both perceive it different, differently. We both orient ourselves to it differently. We both make different decisions and we take different actions. One of us is, is determined to be right or wrong when in reality, based on our own perception, we were both right. Uh, and it's just something we need to keep in mind and be able to articulate as we move forward. Video data is used more and more every day and we're gathering it in huge quantities and, and we need to be careful how we use it. But that, that was all I was trying to articulate in that article. Thanks, Frank. And yeah, we, we have a lot of uh, articles on the website that deal with, you know, video usage, body cameras, um, you know, uh, dash cam uh, cameras. And, and like we just talked about drones, a lot of other articles uh, about drones. So, you know, everybody make sure that you jump on the website and check some of those out in our archives. And uh, yeah, usually in the magazine, we have at least one or two uh, articles that deal with technology in general. So a lot of good information there. Again, I'd like to thank everybody for uh, taking the time to listen to this episode of the Officer Roll Call Podcast. As always, you can reach out to us with any suggestions or uh, questions at editors at officer.com. And, uh, you know, feel free, uh, Frank, if there's anything you want to say to close this out. Just want everybody to stay safe. Hey, take care, everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of Officer Roll Call. Be sure to check back every two weeks for a new episode. Stay safe.